and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Andrea Ledsom. Ledsom is the leader of the House of Commons, previously serving as Environment Secretary. She was a key campaigner for Leave in the EU referendum, and in the Tory leadership contest that followed, Ledsom made the final two before bowing out in what she said was in the best interest of the country and paving the way for Theresa May to become Prime Minister. In her current role as Leader of the House, Ledsam has led the charge in the Commons' response to bullying and sexual harassment allegations, and also sparred with John Burko from time to time. So many thanks for joining us, Andrea. And we touched on many of the things you are doing now and achievements, but I thought it would be good, as we do in this podcast, to start by going back in time. Okay. We had Jess Phillips, the last guest on this podcast, and she was saying at school they had to write what they wanted to be when they were older, and she went straight for it with Prime Minister. <laughs> did you have political ambitions from an early age? Yes, I did, actually. When I was 13, it used to completely terrify me that we were still in the middle of the Cold War, And I used to really lie awake worrying that someone might press that red button and we would all die. And I remember we used to get public service sheets of paper telling us what to do in the event and how to build a nuclear shelter and things like that. And I had an older sister and a younger sister and we used to try and build a nuclear shelter with the cushions on the sofa, but it wasn't very satisfactory. So, But I, I decided at that point that I was going to be an MP and save the world from a nuclear disaster. So far, we're doing quite well. I take full credit for it, yeah. (laughs) Good achievement. So after finishing university, you moved into finance. At that point, did you still want to be an MP or did you... Were you interested in getting a career before you entered Parliament? Well, I I was really raised to think that the world doesn't owe you a living so for me leaving university I was just determined to make my way and the city was where people made their way so my first job was in a tiny little company looking at joint ventures between Chinese and Canadian companies and then I quickly moved on to a broking a US broking firm and was trading on the London Metals Exchange which was so much fun and from there on to BZW and spent 10 years in BZW and Barclays. And what was your experience of kind of the finance industry at the time because there are lots of some accounts saying at the time you know perhaps it wasn't women friendly and so forth but did you ever feel that you weren't seen as an equal in that environment. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty brutal, and certainly there was no effort made to allow you to balance work and life. So the whole sort of jacket on the back of the chair thing was very real, and so was the excess at the time. I mean, I I joined Beza W in 1987, and at the time it was just after Big Bang, and there were people earning huge amounts of money very young, and really just you. Know, doing ridiculous things and yeah it was it was a interesting time and did you ever have much experience of the infamous socials from that era yeah I mean socials tended to start at lunch and carry on until midnight but I didn't love it to be perfectly honest and in particular that it was there was still the remnants of the very much old school you know long lunches with sort of 1950s claret and very very much male dominated and it was interesting because it was definitely changing so I was involved with the commercial paper 
industry, which was a whole new part of the money markets. And so the people who were in those teams were tended to be quite young. And so we were a different sort of group to some of the more well-established kind of gilt-edged market makers and the equity traders and so on. So there was a, it was definitely different cultures at, at, at war with each other in, in investment banking. And you also had to combine having a child with your career. Well, I, I actually moved from BZW. I did a number of different roles there and then went to Barclays to become a banker to the investment banking sector. And then when I had my first child, I'd actually been promoted to a senior executive. And I had my first child and it was very, very difficult then because I really did want to be able to spend some time with my child and and it was very difficult to be able to do that in that environment in those days. So I have huge sympathy with women who want to get that work-life balance and will always support them to do that. And you then went on to have another 10 years in finance where you also took on a role as a counsellor and expanded your family. So at what point in juggling all those things did you decide it was the right time to go for that full-time politics career? So I think when my boys were little, that was the one time in my life when I thought I'm not going to do politics because already then you could see that it was a pretty brutal business. And, um, you know, having left the city, I wasn't up to going straight back in at the, at the, at the sharp end. But once my boys were a little bit older, I decided, you know, now was the right time. And that ambition to really to make the world a better place, to kind of make the world a safer place, to sort of put in to the society that I feel I've had a lot out of was still with me so I decided to go for it and then got pregnant with my third child so you know that was um bad timing I remember giving birth to her at home at half past two in the morning and going to a selection meeting a final selection for Reading West that evening and people thought I was mad probably true but um so she's had her first uh, political meeting the day she was born it's good experience <laughs> People must have been quite impressed with your endurance, I suppose, which is something you need in a politics career. Yeah, and you definitely, you build that over the years. You know, I've been an MP now for eight years and I'm definitely a huge amount more robust than I was when I started out. Yeah, and in the that selection process, so the first seat you stood in, Nosley South. Yes. And that is Merseyside area, which isn't known for being no, a Tory quite. stronghold. No. <laughs> um, yeah. How, how did you find campaigning? And I get what some what sometimes it's called in Tory circles or, you know, no hope seats. So. Well, I loved it. And there were a few reasons for that. One is that it was the second safest Labour seat in England. So there's a bit of a medal for that. It was uh, actually Harold Wilson's old seat. Secondly, I had the most fantastic local chairman who was a bus driver locally in Highton. And he was so welcoming. He and his family made us really welcome. Yeah, we had three young children. And the third thing was that the people who we were knocking on the doors of were also incredibly welcome, welcoming. They would sort of say, well, we don't vote Tory around here, but it's very nice of you to come. So, you know, you did feel appreciated. And there was kind of nothing to lose as well. I mean, I had a very big swing to the Conservatives from a tiny, tiny vote to a slightly bigger vote. But, you know, in percentage swing, it was quite big. And I, I really enjoyed it, actually. I, I have uh, very happy memories of my time up in Merseyside. And do you think from kind of campaigning in those difficult areas, do you think it taught you a lot? Because I speak to some MPs, um, such as James Cleverly, who say that actually going for those no-hope seats, as they're sometimes called, really um, 
helped him become the campaigner he is today. And he thinks had he been just put straight into a safe seat, he, he might not have had that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I I really loved it. It was a great campaigning experience. And for me, it um, consolidated in me the fact that I wanted to do it. Because when you're the candidate, you do take a lot of flack. You have to answer for every single policy issue. And so, you, yeah, it is it's definitely a bit of a, a trial that if you come through it, you're more confident at the end of it. So I can I, I would certainly recommend that people do fight a seat, whether it's a, a by-election that's not winnable or whether it's a, a seat that's a you know strong opposition seat it's always worth doing and then in 2010 slightly well easy might be the right word but you know a, a less challenging seat <laughs> well it was it was a brand new seat actually so uh it was predicted to be a conservative win but it was actually a much bigger conservative win than than it was forecast to be and it's a just a fabulous seat I mean I feel so fortunate to have been selected there and my family on both sides come from Northamptonshire and Buckinghamshire for generations of farmers so for me it was just brilliant to effectively be selected in a seat somewhere that is really home. And then coming into Parliament after obviously all that time and all those efforts was it what you expected it to be? Well, actually, no, not really. I think the amazing thing about Parliament is until you get there, you can't ever get a good enough insight. I mean, I suppose if you are a researcher or a special advisor, then you might do. But definitely as somebody who'd never been involved directly with it before, it's a total surprise. And even things like how to read the order paper and how the hours of the sittings work and so on. I remember coming in in 2010 and just trying to suck up all the information possible on how do you do a parliamentary question and how do you organise a Westminster Hall debate. And I remember in my first year there, I had a fantastic researcher who is now my policy special advisor. And I said to him, what we're going to do in this first year is everything you can do as a backbencher. So written questions, a Westminster Hall debate, an adjournment debate, a 10 minute rule bill, all of these things that for people who have never been to Parliament before would just seem odd. But we got on and did all those things, you know submissions to select committee inquiries all of the things that you could do as a backbencher so it was a a really good experience in that first year and then how did you find the social side of parliament because it has a history of involving late nights in various bars i have a dining club with some of my 2010 intake not the pizza club not the pizza club, no, entirely different. No, with some with some colleagues who I became an MP in 2010 with, and we have a laugh, and we get together quite regularly, and just we kind of do our own poll on different policies and have a good evening there. And you know, I joined a lot of groups on different policy areas as a backbencher, and obviously I was on the Treasury Select Committee, so you do get to know your colleagues there, and actually meeting people cross party is really great. But I've never been a big bar enthusiast and I, I've always had ever since I came into Parliament my husband and I've had a flat in Westminster and our youngest at the time was six so I would always race home to read her a story perhaps with my trainers on so I could run back in the event of a vote but yeah I was always kind of pretty much home focused when I could be. And you were quite quickly promoted and went on to be economic secretary at the treasury and going on to more roles from there how did you find that jump and the hours it involved 
Yes, yeah, so the hours do rack up, but also the weekends because the ministerial box follows you everywhere. So, yeah, it's, it's very long hours. But for me, do you know, I've always wanted to be stuck into making a difference. And so having had the roles I've had have just been fantastic. I mean, being city minister was a real square peg in a square hole because, you know, having also I spent four years on the Treasury Select Committee and having had 25 years in finance, it really did feel like I was I, I knew what I was talking about and the terminology wasn't alien to me. So I loved that job. And then going on to energy was something I knew nothing about. And so that was brilliant in its own way, because I am a bit geeky. I do like to sort of get immersed in policy. And so learning about all of the different you know, contracts for difference and renewable policies and so on, really genuinely interesting. And then you know, moving on to DEFRA was a fabulous job and you know the first cabinet role so that's a whole new experience but yes I mean the work definitely picks up a notch with every promotion and it is quite time consuming. And then it's, it was funny talking about those roles in that time because it feels like and you'd know this more for me a slightly simpler time because that was before the EU referendum Yeah. <laughs> and obviously we had the 2015 election then we had the referendum and you came out for leave, very well documented. At the time, I remember there were some people who pointed out that, I think there was a quote in the past that was dug up, which suggested you had thought previously Brexit could be bad for the economy. And you made the point that the reason you'd change your mind and you decided to come out for leave was you'd had more evidence since then and you'd change your mind. And I was wondering, looking back from, on you know, the time you've had since the leave result, where do you stand on it now? Are you happy with the way Brexit is going and has it gone as you expected? Yeah, well, um, just just to go back briefly and address that point, I, I spent several years as a backbencher running something called the Fresh Start Project that was looking to reform the EU from within. And there were, I think, over 200 Conservative MPs at the first meeting. And I set it up with Chris Eaton-Harris and George Eustace. And we had a huge following, lots of colleagues, really keen to reform the EU from within it. And my comments that have been reported were made to the Hansard Society at a time where I was still trying to fight against people saying, oh, you just want to leave, you just want to leave. So I was trying to make the point, no, I don't I want to reform it I want to reform it and then we did we published a number of articles uh, well actually significant pieces of research a number of articles but then also a manifesto for change and presented it to David Cameron when he went to the EU to seek profound change and it was a very reasonable set of asks and the document is still available today and so for me when he came back and I remember it to this day on the 20th of February 2016 and said this is what he'd got and I looked at it compared to the very sensibly researched and well-supported asks for reform. It just seemed to me there is no way it's ever going to reform. And so my concern was that the EU was not going, it wasn't even staying still, it was going down a path that the UK simply could not support. So my view of that is exactly the same today as it was then. The UK is far better to leave the EU, not with any animosity, but to make our way in the world as a globally outward-looking nation and to rebuild ties with the Commonwealth, to look at free trading relationships around the world, but at the same time to keep the close relationship with the EU. So, you know, I have no regrets and I think it's been a very tricky negotiation as it was always going to be. 
But at the same time, I think Parliament really does need to get behind the Prime Minister's deal. It really does need to. The clock is ticking. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And then in the aftermath of the EU referendum result, where you obviously played a, a large role in the Leave campaign, I mean, in those debates, you run a lot of positive praise in the EU referendum debates near, near the time of the vote. After that, we all know what happened. Leave won. David Cameron resigned. We ended up having a leadership contest and we had a favourite in Boris Johnson, which didn't quite go to plan for him. <laughs> and before, before, Not quite. And you obviously entered the race, then made it to the final two. And I was wondering, in that time, you received a lot of attention and some of it was quite negative publicity. And I was just wondering, were you surprised by the level of scrutiny from entering that leadership race and going as far as you did? No, I wasn't surprised by the level of scrutiny. I was surprised by the level of hostility. And, you know, I mean, you would expect, if you are seeking to lead your nation, that you would quite rightly have lots of questions asked of you. But what was quite difficult was the... um, absolute extraordinary vitriol and I think I think actually looking back on it that was partly because of the role I'd played in the referendum and the fact that you know there were a lot of people who were pro-remain who were really hurting badly and I think you know that has continued to be the case I think people have been extremely hostile I think it's a real problem in our politics today and it's it's not really abated since the referendum and so my very sincere hope is that once we've left the EU once we've sort of started to make our way outside the EU that that will people will start to come back together again and start to appreciate each other more. Having obviously at your personal life or previous jobs and things like that put in the spotlight did it ever put you off frontline politics Um, no never no I mean it just made me all the more committed you know I mean since then I've just sort of as you do you kind of lie awake one night reliving a conversation thinking I wish what I should have said was this or that but no it makes me more determined than ever to do what I can to make this country a greater place and I really do think there is so much potential in the United Kingdom in in a in a global environment to be a force for good and at home to do so much more to enable our nation to be happier and more more settled with itself. And I, I think in leaving the EU, we have a huge opportunity and I'm determined to be a part of that. And then after that leadership contest, obviously you stood aside and Theresa May went on to be Prime Minister. And I do remember that. <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> and then you had your role change after that when you were appointed to be leader of the House. Yeah. With the role leader of the House, it can sometimes be seen as a kind of an exit role but what did you expect from that role? Well you know the the last two holders of the job one went on to become Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and the other one went on to become Secretary of State for Department for Transport so you know as a matter of fact but I mean I when I was first offered the job it was a bit like you know I I, like many people didn't really know what that job involves but it has been the most extraordinary role in the most extraordinary parliament and it's just been such a privilege I mean essentially the role of leader of the commons is to get the business through the house and to answer questions on a Thursday so the entire government 
whole burden of legislation falls to the committee that I chair to make sure that it's ready for introduction, that it's got proper handling strategies. And of course, when you don't have a government majority, it is incredibly detailed scrutiny, which really suits um, my sort of geeky side to really get stuck in. You know, I have to approve amendments of great technical detail right across all Whitehall departments for all legislation. So it's a real bird's eye view of what government is doing at any one time so it's absolutely fascinating and uh, you know likewise on Thursday mornings I have to answer questions on literally anything so Wednesday night is bath night with my business questions pack so that I can go through and learn all of the sort of latest statistics and consultations and so on so it's, it's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it must be also probably one of the most challenging times to be in that role. Oh, definitely. If you think about it, no yeah. uh, working majority with the DEP, and then also a legislative timetable, which means you have to somehow get all this Brexit legislation through. Yes. Does it give you nightmares? Do you ever wake up just thinking <laughs> of your legislative timetable? No, no I'm just... I, I, the, the thing I, I do is I just focus on ensuring that the one thing is going to happen, and that is we're going to get the legislation through. So we've introduced a whole new system of monitoring secondary legislation, something that doesn't get much airtime. But a lot of the preparations for Brexit, whether there's a deal or whether there's no deal, is actually in secondary legislation. So we've had a whole new system of scrutiny of that that we're sort of monitoring the laying dates and the sort of all of the different debates that need to take place, the quality of the explanatory memoranda and so on, so that they can have a smooth passage through Parliament. And of course, really vital in this Parliament has been to reach across the chamber and to try to accommodate colleagues on all sides of the House. So I've done a lot in trying to promote private members' bills from opposition as well as conservative backbenchers and looking at modernisation of parliament so we've introduced proxy voting first time ever something I'm so proud of enabling new parents to spend time with their new babies and you know there's been a huge amount that we've been seeking to do in the leader's office and we've achieved quite a lot. And then the other thing you've had to do in this role is which I don't think anyone probably expected at the time has been a lot of work on harassment and bullying Yeah. partly because of we had the Westminster Sleaze scandal and then we've also had bullying reports and a long review which found that there were certain figures including the speaker who were seen as part of the problem potentially or part of the blocker to having reform have you been surprised by the evidence you've heard or the stories you've heard when you've been you know churning through all these reports of these problems Yes, uh, simply yes, I have been really surprised and really horrified at some of the stories. I mean, it really was a huge undertaking to set up the working group on harassment and bullying, and I'm so proud of what we achieved. I mean, it was real cross-party collaboration. All parties signed up, all seven of the parties signed up to the new complaints procedure, and it's now working well. You know, we've had over 250 calls made to the complaints procedure in the last quarter uh, that's been reported and there are investigations underway but yes I've been really shocked at some of the evidence that we heard during the passage of the work and what's been really clear to me is the vital importance of confidentiality you know almost unlike any other walk of life the scrutiny that people are under in parliament means that even if you're the victim you will be massively 
scrutinised yourself, accused of lying, of trying to cause trouble, of trying to protect your own backside, just for coming forward to complain about something that's happened to you. So confidentiality has been a really core part of the work that we've done. You yourself have had your own experience of, I suppose, difficult relations with figures such as the speaker. We had a moment just before Christmas, I think you could call it perhaps going viral, (laughs) when in the chamber we had Jeremy Corbyn allegedly muttering under his breath stupid Mm. women Mm. in the direction of Theresa May. In a stupid people sort of way. Yes, (laughs) exactly, Mm. exactly. And multiple lip readers suddenly had a lot of work for the day. (laughs) quite. (laughs) And And they all thought he'd said stupid people, of course, didn't they? Yes. I think they found one. During that display there was attempt to get a point of order to bring it to the speaker's attention what lots of MPs thought had happened and at that point when the speaker was saying he you know he didn't see it but he he would try and condone it you had your own point to make thank you mr speaker i would just like to ask um after your um finding there that individuals who are found to have made unwelcome remarks should apologise. Why it is that when an opposition member found that you had called me a stupid woman, you did not apologise in this chamber? I think it's safe to say that the House pretty much erupted at that point. The Speaker, I think, lost control and you seem to get a lot of support from at least your benches for your comment and and Twitter and I was just wondering what was going through your mind (laughs) when you decided to make that point so publicly well very very seriously having you know spent a year of my life sorting out this complaints procedure the one thing I promised myself is I would always call out any evidence that I saw of harassment and bullying, I would never just walk on by. And there's been far too much walking on by. So I have to say, I was with some trepidation, but it just, the moment was upon me. So I had to seize it. So I did drop the mic. (laughs) (laughs) On leaving, did you feel, did you have a bit of a kind of power walk on leaving? Well, I was was kind of slightly (laughs) shell-shocked. I can't believe I just did that. But anyway... (laughs) And then how are your relationships with John Burke now? I mean, you know, I have huge regard for the role of Speaker. And at all times, I try to keep very, you know, reasonable, respectful relationship with him. But nevertheless, as I say, I will always call out harassment and bullying wherever I see it. And that includes anybody who is harassing or bullying anyone. Final thing I just wanted to ask you was, obviously, in your new role, you've done a lot of things standing up for lots of people, but particularly women who feel they've suffered harassment. And in that moment, you won quite a lot of praise for, you know, just calling it out. But it does sometimes feel like if you are on the right, or people have experienced this, that the sisterhood doesn't always stretch yes. across. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. I was wondering what your experiences have been. Do you feel, A, that you identify as a feminist? And two, do you think that people on the left give you plaudits when you when you do things or do you think they hold it back so so i i have huge regard for so many people across politics and i'm not a very tribal person and i would certainly say i have some good friends on the labor benches and indeed amongst the scottish nationalist party uh, and caroline lucas and i've worked together for years on early years so you know and we work together on the harassment stuff so i'm definitely hugely respectful of a lot of the work of a lot of women in particular to try and improve 
the plight for other women. You know, I've had my own horrendous experiences in my career of misogyny and a complete failure to understand the need to balance work and life. And I'm just determined not to pull up the ladder. You know, now my kids are sort of on their way, teenage or beyond, and I want to help other women. So I will always seek to support women across the chamber. But to your question of does the sisterhood reach out, I would say I've had a lot of support from the opposition benches, from women and from men, actually. I mean, we have a good bit of banter sometimes on a Thursday morning and a bit of a poetry competition going on from time to time, not to mention the odd flounce here and there. And, yeah, so it's, it's good. I mean, I, you know, I, as I say, I, I respect parliamentarians for the work they do I think we're all really under the cosh from the hostility towards politicians at the moment from the nation and you know part of that is to do with the referendum and part of it's to do with 24-7 media and the kind of keyboard warriors sat at home just abusing people and I think we do need to slightly stick up for each other and call it out when we see it you know scrutiny is one thing but Twitter trolling and abuse is quite something else and at the moment there's far too much of the latter. Thanks Andrea and thanks for joining us today. Thanks Katie.